This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Idra Novi first hit my radar with Ways to Disappear, which technically is her debut novel. I don't think it was your first book. I think there was some poetry and a lot of translation before that. But I love this novel. Brazilian writer goes up a tree with a suitcase and a cigar in her mouth and disappears. And that's pretty much all I'm going to say at the moment. We're going, we're going to come back to this novel, but I love this book. And the Brazilian novelist may or may not be a little Clarice Lispector-ish. And yeah, we're going to come back to that too. But Idra's new novel, Take What You Need, is out in paperback. And that's where we're going to start because you're in the United States. We've got, well, I don't want to call it a story of mothers and daughters because it's much more than that. Let's call it a story about who gets to tell stories and who gets to make art. Does that work for I you? I like that. Yes. Okay. Idra, I'm so happy to see you. It's been a minute. Yes, it's fantastic to see you as well. So take what you need. We're in the Allegheny Mountains of Western Pennsylvania, which you did grow up in that neck of the woods. You have not lived there in quite some time. Yeah. Well, my family's been there for over 100 years, so I go back all the time. And in the pandemic, I was actually there a lot because I okay. was living in a one-bedroom rental with two children and a dog. I went back often and, and we stayed with my parents because we were all Zoom. I was Zoom teaching. The kids were Zoom schooling. And they rigged up a zip line in the backyard. And we, we so I actually, when I was working on some, I was actually spending a lot of time in Pennsylvania. Okay. Okay. I love everything about this book. Oh, we you. really get the story through two women, one called Jean and one called Leah. And Jean is not like anyone I've met in literature in a really long time. I'm going to let you explain these women because we're also going to stay spoiler free in this conversation. So I'm going to let you set the tone. But as you know, I really like Jean quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think in this time when I was traveling back and forth and, you know, my, my family had just, you know, it's like a century of life in Western Pennsylvania. So we're like, that is like, inhabits a big place in my mind and ways to disappear begins in Pennsylvania, but it starts with a character leaving. And I think in some way, this is a, like a, a bookend to that first novel because it's about a character coming back. Okay. You know, in my mind, that's that's kind of how I think about them. And I started interviewing people in my hometown because I wanted to write a nonfiction book because I felt this deep draw and wanted to talk about some like major shifts that are happening in a lot of, you know, the Rust Belt and sort of like post steel towns, like how, how, how the radical changes that have happened between when I was there. And now there's only, I think a fifth of the population of what there was when I was growing up. So I've mm -hmm. seen like such a drastic change um, in a place and it's really marked me and, and, and marked everyone I know, whether they stay or not. But I realized that the people that I interviewed who were the most fascinating and who resisted easy answers were artists. And then I started thinking about why we didn't know their art and how much of their art was happening sort of under the known surface of American art, you know? Um, and so that was what got me thinking. And then it was funny. My brother said, if you're looking for artists, there's someone I want you to meet. And it's my barber, he told me. So he took me into a barbershop that was full of flea market art. It was like exactly my kind of thing. All, you know, it was just like lots of records and jukeboxes and art in the walls and everything. But it was actually not the barber who put the art up. It was his wife. And ah. I met her. <laughs> and then she showed me her name. I actually wrote a poem about her recently that came out in poetry. Her name is Helen Golovich. And she made cigar boxes and she made collages on them and filled her basement with all these cigar boxes. And I was like, well, what do you do with these gorgeous collages? And she's like, I just make them for the joy of making them. There was something so freeing about that. And then another artist who um, you had said that you were a fan of was Norm Ed. 
who um, his family's originally from Syria and from Russia, but he, you know, they've been in Pennsylvania for several generations now as well. And he is also more or less off the grid making his art out of discards. And he was my art teacher. So I, uh, we reconnected and Norm Ed greatly influenced his metal work. I got to torch with him. We did a lot of welding together. And so um, I had like the bodily experience of welding with Norm Ed. And I think that his use of, you know, discarded metal from, you know, all that post-industrial metal that one can find in abundance became the material literally of this novel. I love this so much. Poet, translator, novelist, welder. (laughs) I love it. I just, I love it so much. Because one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading Take What You Need, and I've, I've read it a couple of times now because obviously it's out in paperback and I read it before it came out in hardcover and reread it obviously before we sat down here, is how it connects thematically to Ways to Disappear and also your second novel, Those Who Knew, which is set on an unnamed island, cuts across time and is sort of about the price of silence, shall we say. Mm. But you're also talking about how women in a lot of ways, become invisible. No matter where we are in the world, there does come a point where women become invisible. And both Jean and Leah, both of the women in Take What You Need, have become invisible in their own way. And yet, Jean dies. I'm, that's not a spoiler. <laughs> we learned this very early on. But it's also what brings Leah back to a place that she had pretty much tucked behind her and said, oh yeah, I'm good, thanks. Can we talk about these two women, though? Obviously, you've got this amazing backstory for Jean, who is the artist in question. But she can't live on her own just doing cool stuff in the living room of the house she grew up in, right? So, Leah. Yes. Well, it was a funny thing that happened um, about invisibility. Um, mm-hmm. After this novel came out, Normed, the artist who sort of, and Helen, it was sort of a hybrid, you know, because I think that Jean's existence in this book is very much as an invisible woman. And her father didn't teach her to weld. And I think that it's still a lot of resistance to women taking themselves seriously as, as welders and as metal artists. It's getting better, thank goodness. And Normed's daughter came up to me, who's, you know, in, in her, I think, early 40s. And she said, you wrote my life. I relate to Leah, to inheriting this art, decades of art. And she says, when it comes time to find a home for my father's art, I'm calling you. And it's like, oh, Nellie, I was like, I'll help you, but this is an invented artist, you know? Right, right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And it was funny. I did an event with the head at, at the time of the Visionary Art Museum that plays a role mm-hmm. in this novel. And she yeah. thought Jane was real and um, was like, was asking where her art was stored. And it just, to me, felt that I had taken this woman whose art was invisible and whose life was invisible. And she became real. Her art became real to the daughter of an artist. It became real to a woman who was running a museum. Mm-hmm. And I think that to me was so validating and exciting what the imagination can do, you know? You also had me thinking about the Watts Towers yes. in Los Angeles. And for anyone who hasn't seen them, they are mosaic and mirror and they're these, they are wild when you see them too. And it was one man just working yep. over time, shipping away. I love seeing someone's vision like that, right? And yes, Jean felt very real to me mm-hmm. as well as she's <laughs> welding in her living room and yeah. making all of this art. And I wouldn't say Jean always makes the best decisions. I think that's fair. 
<laughs> but you also made her a stepmom, which I thought as a de- as a literary device. I mean, it's true to her as a character because I don't really see her necessarily needing to be a different kind of parent, right? Yeah. But it's a big piece of her and it's like a warm, squishy <laughs> piece that I wouldn't have expected. I genuinely wouldn't have expected. I mean, and this is part of her, do I make art? Do I have a family? What's happening? Who do I take care of? And I'm wondering when you knew that's what the relationship was going to be. Well, I, I'm I'm very close to my stepmother and mm-hmm. I talk to her often and I couldn't find any novels that portrayed the stepmother adult daughter relationship in a way mm-hmm. that was true for me emotionally. Yeah. And um, I think as I've gotten older and became a parent and my stepmother, we would talk about how, how, you know, she step, I mean, I think, I don't know if the, you know, the step parent steps forward into the role of a parent. And I think that, you know, I'm close to my mother as well. You know, I'm, I'm Leah's not autobiographical in that way at all, but I, I think I wanted to explore you know, the way that a, a step parent is, you know, may not have any legal rights if the if the marriage dissolves, but, you know, can step in with their whole heart and their whole being and, you know, make make a child into the person that they are and give them maybe the things that they cherish the most. And so I, I wanted to write about that because I just hadn't read that, you know, and I think sort of the cheap villainizations of stepmothers has become tiresome. And so I wanted to chart another story. It's kind of like what you did with Ways to Disappear. You were like, well, I wanted to read a novel about a translator that made sense to me. I kept seeing all of these novels about translators where they were kind of mealy-mouthed weird people. And I'm paraphrasing you poorly, but you were kind of like, well, actually, translators are brave and they live in liminal space and they do all sorts of other different things. And and I do, I think, you know, I know it's been ascribed to Toni Morrison and I'm sure she did say it, but lots of folks have said, you know, write the novel that you want to read. And there's so much life in Take What You Need. And I really, there's some other characters. There's a kid called Elliot, Jean's neighbor. There's also Leah's dad. And I have many feelings about Leah's dad and his bad decisions, but okay. (laughs) But I really want to focus on these women because they're both making art in a different way because Leah's a translator. Yes. Well, she, yeah, she edits, edits websites. I, okay. you know, yes, but not necessarily books. I was trying, you know, yes. I mean, I think of ways to disappear. I actually read, uh, there was an interview with Mario Vargas Llosa and he was like, said that, you know, translators are the good girls and like the writers are the bad boys. And I was like, oh, Mario, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. like translators, we are also the bad girls. <laughs> so I, I think that novel was, you know, and in this way, this novel, I came across something was an author actually online who said, I don't care if Janet and Cleveland reads my novel. And oh. I was like, but what if Janet and Cleveland is the most open-minded, passionate reader? What if Janet and Cleveland is doing the best art that you don't know? You know, why underestimate, given somebody's name and where they live, who's a great reader in this country. I think that that stayed with me, you know, really, you know, was like driving me sort of like, you know, making the Watts Towers, you know, like, I was like I'm going to build this because I want Janet in Cleveland to be in the Whitney Biennial. I want Janet from Cleveland to, you know, be part of who we think of as someone who might change this country and in a beautiful way and be part of the best art and the best new ideas. Why not? But also Leah and Jean are both kind of living in this, they're living in their own versions of liminal space, right? Like 
Jean has grown up in this town. She's in the same house that she grew up in. You know, her job has ended because the regional hospital has closed, which we keep seeing again and again and again. Leah has lived around the world and is now living in Queens and is not coming back to this place. Neither of them is quite settled. No. Yes. Even though they've chosen a place, right? They've each chosen a place, but they're not settled. Yeah. And that's a nuance that we don't always get, right? Like, it's like everyone's straight up an outsider or everyone's straight up, you know, a townie. And it's like, well, actually, you're doing this thing where everyone's walking on a knife's edge. Yes. Yes. And I do feel like I am like inhabiting two knives at all times. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The edge of two knives all the time. I'm like one foot on one knife and one Mm -hmm. on the other. You know, like here I am, you know, living in New York. And there are many conversations, you know, where I was like, well, you know, I I think that might flatten exactly, you know, who's living and what's going on. Because I think some Mm -hmm. of the bravest, you know, people like just talking when I was at the event in my hometown, the books, the bookstore owners in my hometown, you know, and what they're trying to do to bring poetry and novels and keep conversations about literature. They opened an independent bookstore in a town that's getting smaller all the time. That's mm-hmm. so brave. And I love those two women at that store, you know, and it was a beautiful, it was like one of the most beautiful events I did. Also the the two guys who run the welding center have a fellowship in my hometown, the center for metal arts in Johnstown. And they have brought in a lot of women who are welding the most incredible art. And they're coming from places, you know, they're coming from Norway, they're coming from Ohio, they're coming from California. Like, I just think that there's more varied and more dynamic, passionate people that we can't assign them to any one geography. And I think it diminishes all of us to do so. Did writing take what you need change you? Yes, I think it did. I think it did. Yes, yes. it, It enlivened me. I, these conversations that I had when I was first making them, I had one hunch about what would happen in the conversation. And the thing that ended up happening in the people in my town, and these were people I'd known since birth or people I hadn't seen since high school. You know, I went to bars with my stepbrother and things like that. And then there would just be amazing conversations with people who just did not adhere to any sort of boxes that they might be put in, which I think I've written about in every box. Who were we writing off and why write people off? You know, you know, it, it, it's, it seems to make life less exciting when when one does so, you know? And so, you know, I was talking, I, there was like, there's one uh, bar in my town that has a drag show. And I was there and the bartender who who is one of the performers in the drag show is also well known for doing taxidermy. And he moved back to town because he loves to hunt. And some days he'll go, he'll hunt, he'll make some extra money doing taxidermy. And then he, then he performs in the drag show. And he's very happy, you know? And that's the story of Western Pennsylvania, too. And I just think that I just, I, it really did change me and make me want to write this book and grant everybody more life than our media depictions often grant them. What you just said, too, was making me think about something you said in an earlier interview. And I think it actually was for the second novel, Those Who, Those Who Knew. And I'm just going to quote you for a second because this is a really great line. In a way, translation is also about thinking of issues of silence and whose voice is heard and how it's heard. In translation, you learn a lot about what you call the major languages and the minor languages and how that plays into whose work is then translated and seen as worth working. And I just, I feel like you were translating for me. I mean, I'm a coastal person. I've always lived on a coast, except for a little foray into Chicago and then I came back to a coast. But I feel like you were able to translate communities for me that I did not necessarily have a deep experience of. I mean, I've been around, sure, but 
I, you're so grounded in this place. Your family's been there for 100 years. You still have family there. You're going back. And it's not just the pandemic. I mean, you were going back regularly. Yeah. And I just, I love the idea, right? Because we do get bifurcated sometimes as Americans. We get very bifurcated. That you have created this world, right, in your novels that are, it's deeply American. And it's all of the books, but really take what you need. Um, that you've created this world where everyone has space. Mm. And I think that's really important. I don't think we talk about that. And, and like everyone's sort of retreated to their corners, right? And you don't let your characters do that. No, Jean is not going to stay in the corner. Oh, no. <laughs> she turns on the argon gas and she takes her welder and fills the whole room. Yeah. <laughs> and yes, I, yeah, it is true that even we maybe in, so, impose that on ourselves to retreat right. into the corner. And it was, I do think it was freeing for me to write about a female character who has been relegated to a corner, mm -hmm. but she takes over the whole house and, you know, she builds her sculptures up to the ceiling, you know, out of whatever, the barber chairs on the corner, the bicycle wheels, you know, she, she takes everything that's been discarded and, and, you know, she resurrects it in her space. I was doing something about visual artists and uh, an event on visual artists in the United States and the person who was running the event was like, well, what haunt, you know, what artist haunts you? And people were naming artists. And I said, I think the artists who haunt me are the ones whose work we'll never see, you know, because they started making art at a late age, because they started making art at a, in a place that we're quick to dismiss as regional art, as folk art, you know, because of their background, because they, you know, whatever, like Jean, they're just having a great time at home and, you know, don't even bother to care what the world will think. You know, I think, and so I think, you know, when I drive by these streets in my hometown where almost all the houses have an X on them, you know, and I had thought that the X on those houses was so that, you know, people would know that those X, the, those houses have been marked for, you know, demolition. And um, I thought it was, you know, more about that. And, you know, there might be, you know, something that was, you know, about the house itself, but actually, and I was thinking, what's in those homes that have been marked for demolition? Is there art in there? Did somebody write some great poems in there? Did somebody, you know, do some music in there? Did somebody, you know, play an amazing violin in there? Like, who, what happened in these homes that are just going to vanish? And I think that's the art that haunts me. And I think that's probably a part, a translator's mission, because, you know, you want to go in for me, when I translate and wrote about, you know, with um, Beatrice's character and Ways to Disappear was, this exciting thing that one can do as a translator is to bring to readers in another language a writer who they wouldn't get to experience, you know, if they don't speak that language. And I think in some ways, you know, some people don't want to try and speak, you know, a little bit of the visual language of the Rust Belt, because I think there's a lexicon that art is made with, and maybe they're more comfortable with the visual lexicon of coastal art and some of the visual language. But that's the story of our country, too. It's a big part of our country. Well, I mean, if you think of the genre that we call outsider art, right? Like there was the whole trash can school, which was a whole different moment. But, you know, there was a moment sort of late 90s, early aughts where suddenly outsider art. So it's like, you know, paint on styrofoam or painting on doors, which also Jean-Michel Basquiat did as well. Yeah. Like these labels that we put on things because we don't see it in the context of, say, the Met or the MFA or, you know, the right. Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. The idea that art can just be on the side of a street or on the side of a house or 
It would be really interesting to me if we stopped trying to put labels on everything. Yes. And now, uh, you know, so and the labels, I think, often to our own detriment. Yeah. You know, um, and I, I think that we're in a time where everyone can sort of delete anyone who doesn't, you know, you can just so easy to mute somebody or delete somebody and narrow. And and I think that, that can sort of, you know, you might what you might be missing out on. On the other hand, it's overwhelming to be open to everything. I mean, just think when you walk into Barnes and Noble, how many books are in there? If you didn't have some label on the on the right. on the shelf, you would never leave. I mean, I, you know, unless you have many hours, but. You know, and I think that was like when I was bringing up the X's on the houses, you know, in, in my hometown and, and, and on the street where my brother lives, where there's only two inhabitants left on his street. There were all the other houses are either vacant or marked for demolition. But the X's were actually so that the fire department would not go inside because oh. they wouldn't risk their lives so that they would know that no one lived there and there was no oh. one safe. And, you know, I think many people tell them to know that. We all had this other impression of what, those X's on the door for, and I was like, "Well, but what if it's not true? What if there's something else in there to save?" Right. You know. So I think this book was about answering that question. I think that landscape's really important too. I mean, if you're driving sort of in the byways, right, and the and the smaller roads, there's so much to see, and I'm always sort of taken aback when I see something. And it's everywhere. This is not. This is not just Western Pennsylvania. This is, and yes, it happens on the coast too. It's just places where people have left because they cannot stay, and they can't stay because there isn't work or there isn't whatever. And just watching these houses sort of crumble to dust, or climate d displacement. Yeah, you know? climate displacement too. Yeah, all of it. I always want to know why someone left. I think my question that I always want to know is why someone stays. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of the the inverse of that. Yeah, no, I get it. Because I'm 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 quick to, you know, you know, take off. I'm I'm a furtive probably by nature, whether it's language or novel setting or something. It's my first book completely set in the United States. Although there's some flashbacks set in Lima and Peru. So but, you know, but I think for the most part it's set here. But I think that, you know, I'm always so cool. What kind of bravery does it take to right. stay? So I think some librarians maybe want to go and look for some easier places to, you know, be a librarian. But I was recently visiting high schools in Western Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh and outside of it. And those school librarians are not leaving. You know, they said there's books that have been on the shelves for 40 years and they are going to keep those books on those shelves. Literature is their life's work as it is yours, as it is mine. And they're not leaving. And part of it, too, is defining home, right? Like home isn't necessarily a physical location. I mean, yes, that's part of it. But if you look at how Leah defines home, and if you look at how Jean defines home, and then there's some other folks who define home even in a different way. I just, I love rolling around in the back of their brains and watching them figure out what everything means to them. I mean, that's part of why I read, right? I'm, I'm nosy. I want to eavesdrop. And I get to eavesdrop on some very <laughs> smart folks. And some very complicated folks when I read your novels. And you earlier you were saying, well, walking into the front of a BNN, yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on, but part of me just wants to build a table really tall, really high, with lots of books that are just good books and not explain right. anything beyond it's a great story. I'm not going to tell you if it's fiction or nonfiction. I'm not going to tell you if the author's dead or alive or American or not. And just pile it high with stuff that, you know, something's, something there is going to knock your socks off. Just like, you know, books unlike anything else. Characters yeah. unlike anyone else. You know, some, you know, books that are just taking a risk. And, and mm -hmm. I, I was hoping to do that, you know, with, 
with Jean's character. And it was interesting what you said about, it's a great insight about, you know, what what is home. And I think for Jean, Leah's Mm -hmm. home, I think the reason that they, you know, don't feel at ease where they are is because the sort of fulcrum of their sense of home is each other and they're estranged. And that was what was, that was sort of, I didn't plan to write a novel about, uh, you know, a stepmother Mm -hmm. and a daughter who was strange, but I was talking to people who had sort of um, had had a lot of anguish about who they weren't talking to, whether it was a neighbor, whether it was a sibling, whether it was a child or a parent. And I think it's like one in four parents in this country is estranged from one of their adult children. It's, It's, that's a crisis. That's a national crisis. And I think that that is your home, you know, is that person who raised you and who knows you since birth. And if you're not talking to that person for many reasons, that's part of your home that's been eclipsed, you know, like you, you, you're adrift. But watching Leah and Jean kind of dance around each other. Yes. <laughs> it's tricky. I don't mean to sound flip, but it's really fun. And I, you know, they're, they are complicated women and their lives are complicated and not everything runs exactly to plan, but watching you set them up to figure out what matters most, it's like chipping away at this little puzzle, right? And I, I really am trying to stay away from, there's a thing that happens and I'm really yes, trying yes, to stay I, away from I appreciate your artful leaving it to the reader approach to this. Yes. No, it's, it's, it's a great way to, yes. And I do think there is, I mean, all novels, I think have a Rubik's cube aspect to mm-hmm. them, where, you know, and sometimes the novel can feel too simplistic of all the, you know, blues are on one side and the reds on the other, like that, you know, that wouldn't be on my tower at the front of the store. You know, I like novels where there's some sort of um, private logic that the more you read, the more that private logic is legible to you about the sensibility of these characters and what they mean to each other. And then ultimately what they mean to you as a reader. I think that I mourned Jean when this book was over. I mean, I made her up, but she became so real to me. Mm-hmm. I missed her company when it, the book was done. <laughs> you know, she just, I missed her voice. I missed her pizzazz. She really is an original. She, I know, she's absolutely. And, you know, there are other books that have been written about artists figuring it out and how to balance all of the things. And I just, she felt so original and organic to me. And I miss her too. Aww. I read the book twice and I still miss her. I'm like, ah. And again, she's not perfect by any stretch. She makes a couple of decisions where you're like, okay, I understand why she did it. She couldn't have done anything else, but there are a couple of moments. Yeah. As we all have. And I think especially if you're willing to make art, you can't overthink it. You know, you just got to Plug in the plug in your welder and start torching. You know, you just got you got to make it happen. So, can we talk about some of the influence? I mean, obviously, Norm Ed, your former art teacher, and and this sculpture and teaching you to weld. I just I really love the idea that your high school art teacher was teaching you how to weld. But I want to talk about literary influences for a second because you know there are some folks who've said to you, "Oh, well, you write." There's no magical realism in this book, but I want to parse that phrase for a second because you have done some stuff. That's a little more George Saunders-esque, a little Dennis Johnson-esque, a little Karen Russell-esque. But I think because you translate from the Spanish and the Portuguese, people ascribe words to your work that may not necessarily fit. But you pull from so many different places. You pull from poetry and you pull from translation and you pull from fiction. And I just kind of want to roll through the bookcases behind you (laughs) a little bit. I get to do this every now and again where I'm like, oh, yeah, I recognize those spots. These two works of art are both by artists who aren't known that I found in, in, in like flea markets. 
Oh, that's very cool. All right. <laughs> yeah. I just, you know, I'm like, I just, there was one time my, my husband's from Chile and we were like in a, mm-hmm. um, walking in Valparaiso. It's like the port city there where yep. he was born. And there was this gorgeous painting um, behind me. And we asked about the artist and in the store in Valparaiso, they said that he couldn't make enough money making art. This was his last piece. And he opened a pizzeria. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I just love, I just, he, that was like another influence on me is this, you know, this artist who ended up, you know, couldn't, couldn't, you know, couldn't devote the hours in the day to art making. And so he made pizza instead. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like, I just, I think that that's, just, you know, there's many things that can happen. Like, I'm mm-hmm. a misfit, you know, I mean, I probably do the equivalent of moving between making pizza and making novels and poetry and translation. So I understand that, that you can, if you have passion and an expressive nature, I think that you can find joy in many different forms. And I think it can sometimes like, you know, get a little stale if you don't mix mm-hmm. it up. At right. least. So I like to mix it up. And as far as literary influences, I read a lot of Claire Keegan. Oh, I love, love. Yes. And I think that, you know, the history of Ireland is polarized history is very different from the polarization we're experiencing right now in the United States. But because I lived a long time in Chile, and that country is very mm-hmm. polarized as well between, you know, people who are Pinochet supporters, people who see it as a dictatorship. And now we have two very different histories happening in our country. And I think Ireland has, you know, di- you know schools that have children who are reading completely different histories from each other. But I think what I love about Claire Keegan's books is how clean it is and how little moralizing or sort of telling the reader what to think. And she stays in the scene. And she lets the characters speak for themselves. And I knew that that was what I wanted this novel to do. And to let those complexities and just let the reader hear the current, you know, like let the reader hear that water that's whooshing underneath those conversations. I didn't need to say what was in the water. We know what's in the water, you know? So Mm -hmm, I I mm -hmm. felt that Claire Keegan was like how clean and how how vivid the scenes are. But, you know, they're so embodied and, and you know what country they're in, the 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 way the characters speak, the the humor, the way they make each other laugh, that you know, all the shorthand. I mean, I think like I grew up speaking that way. You know, I mean, I didn't really speaking a northern Appalachian dialect, but there are things that are said just in the region where I grew up, and I probably use them more when I'm home. So I definitely wanted to capture that a little in this book too. So I think that was definitely a Claire Keegan influence. I love that too, the idea that you can pull from literature that isn't necessarily the thing that's right next door. Yeah. Right. And just say, oh, but actually this does connect us. I mean, again, this goes back to one of the reasons I read. I like my world to get bigger. Yes. And so the idea that you turn to Claire Keegan, who? Foster. Yes. Oh, I mean, all of her work is great, but Foster. (laughs) Yes. Yes, which I've read like eight times. But I think there's a way in that book that it's, you know, the, the things that happen over meals and over food, the rituals of food, how much goes unsaid, you know, with what people eat and where they eat it. And I thought of those scenes in Foster a lot when I was writing the scenes with Elliot and in the kitchen. It's very different, you know, because Foster has like a young girl, but she's being taken care of. She's hungry, right? And she's in the house of someone who's a stranger. And there's Elliot who's like, you know, doesn't have food in his house, doesn't have water. And there he is in the kitchen of a stranger and she knows he's hungry. And so it's just like, well, what happens to those rituals about food 
when somebody has all the food and somebody has none of it. And there they are alone in a kitchen together. There's such a fraught intimacy, I think, when um, you know there's somebody who wouldn't eat unless they were at your table. You know, it's a very vulnerable position to be in. Fraught intimacy, though, does really describe all of your novels, all three of them. Oh, thank you. No, and I mean that in a good way. I, I know, I know. It sounds know. really weird coming up, but but yeah. fraught intimacy, it's it's that that whole you can't separate, right? Yeah. You can't separate, the char- the characters can't separate from each other. And yet it isn't as simple as, I love you, let's sit down, let's have a... It, it's just not. And and what you do with silence, and I think this brings me to loop back again to translation and the idea that you have to be able to write into the silence or know when simply to pull back and yes. not, because we've all, I mean, I think there are times when you're reading and you understand that you're reading a clunky thing. Yes. I can't bear it. Right. And maybe I don't speak the original language, yeah. but we all know when we know it, when we see it, right? Like we're, we know when we're encountering a thing that isn't capturing the spirit, like you just, mm, makes you itch a little bit, right? You just know that it's not the thing. And part of that is giving your reader space to breathe. Yes. And I loved reading the writing of Agnes Martin, which Mm -hmm, only mm -hmm. says as much as she needs, and Louise Bourgeois. And I read Celia Paul's Amazing Self-Portrait. I read Charlotte Solomon. I read so many works where visual art and and Truett. I read a ton of women artists describing their process, and all of them talk about silence. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I think, because, you know, it's like what I was saying about visual language. Like, I think what something I learned from Norm Ed was this language, which is visual, which is silent, but, you know, you're you're perceiving the language with your eyes, you know, whether he's using mine cribbing, which is the wood that was used, you know, to hold up the mines, or whether, you mm-hmm. know, um, it's going to be um, the plumb bob, which is like such a beautiful symbol for, for a, a tool that reveals gravity, you know, and it's just naturally finds the true, true line, you know, <laughs> and the, the human eye can't find the true line, the way that a plumb bob can. I think there are beautiful things that can happen with visual symbols. And so reading women artists who are saying with words, what can be said in an image that has this aura of silence? And I was, I tried to write into that as a tradition, Mm -hmm. this book. I think it worked. (laughs) I think your plan worked. But you, I mean, you've always written very tightly. I mean, you, some people just, write longer as and that's their practice and we get a different kind of novel but you tend to come in really really tight like under 300 pages it feels like but I might be looking at paperbacks on my desk but you've always written really tightly and I'm wondering how much of that is just coming out of being a poet coming out of being a translator but also rewriting and rewriting and I suspect there's a little bit of rewriting that happens with you Quite a bit. I think I guess I would looked back. Somebody asked me this earlier on. I think I probably wrote a thousand pages for the you know two hundred fifty that are in this book. I definitely threw away yes so much so much, and I I'm a little obsessive about it. But I think because I come from poetry and from you know translating, where you're just trying to just get the sensibility just right. And I also think you know I would I th- I love starting a book on a plane and finishing it. When, when I land. And I just, I guess in my mind, like the perfect length for a novel is something you can finish on a domestic flight in this country. You know what I mean? It's like, 
You don't need an international. I will never write a novel that requires an international flight. It will always be something that you, you know, in English could finish, you know, within the bounds of our sort mm -hmm. of unhinged nation. You could fly anywhere and finish the mm -hmm. book before you get there. I think that's like to me is in my mind, that's what I want from a novel. You know, I like I, there's something to me that just feels right. And I will read and often will be cutting words like in my I'm sure you do that, you know, after a certain point. I think cadence matters. Yeah. And cadence mar matters for your characters. I mean, Jean's neighbor, Elliot, doesn't yeah. have always a lot to say. And sometimes and there are a couple of moments where we meet him and he's saying a lot. But again, he's one of these characters who with body language and physicality and action shows us more of who he is than he thinks he is, right? Like he thinks he's, he's keeping it all to himself and it's like, oof, we know who you are, kid. Yeah. <laughs> and not in a bad, just we know who, but I mean, here's a kid who doesn't trust anyone, Right. And again, it goes back to this sort of fraught intimacy, right? And Leah's got some ideas and Jean's got some ideas and Elliot's just kind of being Elliot because he doesn't, that kid's got it rough, right? And when it I say fun. kid, like he's, you know, he's not little. I mean, he's, he's more of a man than a kid. But just watching the three of them sort of maneuver around each other and knowing what they each bring to their world is kind of a trip. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I have a lot of friends who writers and who aren't the same age as I am. And I, whether they're, you know, like younger writers or older writers and, and they're just sort of, they're different curiosities. And I think that it really like feeds the questions, whether it's, you know, students or um, students who become friends and go on to publish books or, or you know, like artists who who are doing visual art. And, and, you know, the one of the people who taught me how to weld worked in the Welders Union for the city of New York. And she was the only woman in the Welders Union, Julia Murray. And she's now at RISD um, doing metal arts there. But she did weld in her living room. And I think like figuring out the traps that Jean sets up in order to mm -hmm. like not intoxicate and, you know, in her house came from seeing how Julia managed to weld in her house, you know. So, so Julia Murray was, it was an influence. And I also thought about Elliot a lot, you know, with, with Julia, because Elliot's, I don't think giving too much away, you know, he has one parent who, who he lost to cancer as Julia did. And so even in my mind, I just see them that there's something that if you lose a parent that, and this is also true of Leah too, you know, is that how can art be a place where you can sort of work out these irresolvable feelings you know, yeah. about this person who, who you can never speak to again. And then, you know, Leah has that not only, you know, with the, her her biological mother, but also with her stepmother. And and Jean's art can becomes this place where um, she can, there's something to touch. There's something to hold, you know, that art can do that. It's, it's physical. Grief is a trip. Grief is a complete trip. And you've got characters who are all in different ways grieving. Yes. But they have fun too. Like, I think I was important to me that Leah and her husband have laugh in the car as you know even in like you know whatever deep moments when you know it was crazy times in this country but like you know I I laugh with my husband and my family in the car went on those seven eight hour drives across Pennsylvania but some gas station experiences were memorable and um you know, <laughs> not, not exactly the way they happened in the book I won't it won't do any spoilers but um and then you know and I think for Elliot too you know he he's very reserved I never had the luxury of being able to state his mind. I don't think he ever felt, as you said, he had the space 
to really say his take on things because he never was the one with the car. He's not the one with the water. He's not the one who even has a house in some points. So he can't really afford to speak his mind. He never gets to take over the room, but there he is suddenly in a room. And with Gene, they fill it with art. Grief to me drives a lot of different kinds of art. So I don't actually, I, you know, I know there are folks out in the world who are like, well, I just don't want to read a sad book. And Take What You Need is not what I would consider a sad book. There will no. not be copious amounts of weeping. What no. it is, though, is a very smart prodding of us, right? Our assumptions and our place and our idea of class and home and all of these things. But there are moments where it's very witty. There are moments where you're just like, oh, you did a thing. Or at least I was. <laughs> I judge characters. I, you know, I'm talking about fictional characters like they're real again, but mm, it happens. Books, you know, it's part of being a bookseller. You just, this happens. But I never felt like I was being lectured. I felt like I was in, a, I felt like I was dropped into a world with people that I was really, really, as we say in Boston, wicked curious about. <laughs> and... I just, I wanted to know where you were going to take me and where they were going to take me. And it paid off. It oh, really paid off. And I know you said, yeah, this book changed, you know, writing this book changed me. But, you know, why do you write fiction? I mean, you've got all these different outlets, right? Okay, welding aside for a second, because that takes up a lot of space. But the poetry and the translation and, you know, the teaching and all of that. But why do you write fiction? I think well, it's a great question. And I love that you said smart prodding of us. I was like, that is the bar. That is the bar. You're going to be in my head, I think, forever. You know, what is the smart prodding of this novel, Leisure? I think I'll be asking myself that for many books to come. I think that, yeah, I, I was a prodding of myself too. You know, like I wanted to interrogate my own sort of quick judgments and subvert them. Because I heard Jennifer Egan say this, who's also, I would say, an influential writer. And she um, said that, you know, the role of literature is to subvert caricature and subvert stereotype. And I agree with that. Not in like an activist, I don't want to be lectured in any way, but like, why write about a character if they're not new? If they aren't going to be on that stack at the front of the store, it's like, you've never seen this character before. And I think what's so fascinating to me, and I think really makes me excited about writing fiction is seeing that in every book, Jennifer Egan does something new, right? right. Mm -hmm. She is never mm -hmm. derivative of herself. She doesn't play it safe. Yeah. And I heard her say, you know, well, um, with this book, I might lose some readers, but I'll also get some other ones, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and I think it was sort of goes back to that sort of sorting machine that we were talking about earlier that Ruth Ozeki said that she sees a novel as a sorting machine. And I think that she didn't mean it in the way that literature should be a machine devised by AI by any sense, but right. a machine in the sense that the sensibility of the book, the risks it takes, mm -hmm. the, the, what, the kind of what it subverts, it speaks to people who are craving to subvert those stereotypes too, who want to read a character, who subverts these easy um, tropes that we are in this country are very quick to sort of throw on each other. And so I think I, I, it was, for me, it felt like very humanizing to have that be what I hoped that my days would add up to, you know, because it takes so many days me to write a book. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that part I'm clear on. I'm also clear on the rewriting part. You know, yeah. it, it's, 
Man, I spend a lot of time talking to writers. And uh, the rewriting piece, I think, sometimes could be a surprise for folks who may not do this regularly. It's kind of like everyone needs an editor, too. Like, you really just need to sit down and keep chipping away and chipping away and chipping away until the thing breathes. And I also think you need a moment where you're, you consider throwing the book away. Because I have... Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, where I was like, okay... I don't know if this is going to work. I had a friend who had never said this before about any of my books was like, I don't really know if this is going to sort of cohere. And somebody had said to me, I don't know if whether this woman gets to make her art or if anyone ever sees it is enough of, um, you know, stakes for readers. And I was like, following your passion is the highest, one of the highest stakes there are. When sometimes you get feedback, like when you disagree with it, then I felt this like compulsion to say for Jean, you know, to be off in Western Pennsylvania, laughing with her neighbor, making a tower that nobody ever sees or maybe does mm-hmm. is the highest stakes there is. Like, I want to live in a country where that's possible. Adra, we're dangerously close to spoilers. I can feel it. So you know what? I'm going to say thank you so much. This was so great hanging out with you and talking about Jean and Leah and Elliot and art and translating and all of that good stuff. Also, listeners, if you haven't read Ways to Disappear, if you haven't read Those Who Know, they are absolutely worth going back and finding. There's also, of course, the Clarice Lispector that you've translated. There's poetry. There's a new collection of poetry coming this fall. Yes, soon and holy. All right, excellent. So much stuff. But really, it was a delight, as always, to talk to you. So thank you for making the time and Take What You Need is out in paperback now. Thank you, Miwa. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.